A note before we begin. This episode contains discussions of murder, mutilation, gun violence, and domestic abuse. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Community. It's something we crave as humans. Whether it's with family, friends, or coworkers, we all feel the need to belong. The best communities make space for everyone. They support and uplift. But some can do more harm than good. Especially when charismatic leaders take advantage of people looking for acceptance and meaning. When they chip away at their followers' spirits, their independence, goals, and sense of self. When someone is wrapped up in a community like that, they can disappear long before they ever go missing. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a brilliant but troubled Chicago filmmaker whose search for meaning took him away from his movies and friends and into the arms of a dangerous spiritual leader. His name is Alan Ross. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I'm starting this story back in the 1950s. Alan Ross and his twin brother Brad live in a conservative Chicago suburb. And from a young age, Alan doesn't really feel like he fits in. He's surrounded by science types. His mom, Anne, is a former nurse. And his dad, Laurie, is a chemist who works for the U.S. Department of Energy. But Alan is an artist. By the time he's a teenager, he falls in love with filmmaking. His parents maybe don't totally understand why, but his twin Brad knows that making movies is more than a hobby for Alan. It's his calling. 
And sure enough, after graduating high school, Alan gets accepted to a great art school and moves to the city to make his dreams come true. When he arrives in Chicago, it's the early 70s. His college, the School of Art Institute, is really prestigious, but a little non-traditional. Like, some professors don't even give grades. But it's a perfect fit for Alan, who develops a reputation as an eccentric. Some find him hard to get to know. He's a little shy and likes to take his time with things, which means he's always running late. But his sense of patience makes him a great documentarian and a friend. He's thoughtful, innovative, and giving. Someone who can fix a camera in a flash and works on his friend's movie projects for free. He's also ambitious. While still an undergrad, Alan co-founds an organization called Chicago Filmmakers, an artist cooperative that helps indie filmmakers rent equipment and screen their films. He spruces up his apartment, an old rundown loft, installs a projector, and starts screening experimental films on Saturday nights. Soon enough, Alan's place becomes the hangout for young local artists, and he becomes an enigmatic new member of Chicago's indie film scene. After Alan finishes undergrad, he stays at the Art Institute for a graduate degree and starts teaching classes part-time. When he's not studying, he works on small-budget movie sets as a camera operator and drives a taxi for extra cash, which he uses to fund his projects. In 1981, Alan finishes a documentary series called The Grandfather Trilogy. It's about his grandfather's last few months on Earth. It's a simple but moving portrait of life and death. It starts with his grandfather's mundane daily routines and ends with his funeral. I'm not a film critic, but I'd say the series puts a lot of emphasis on traditions and habits the patterns that we fall into as people and how they shape us. The love Alan has for his grandpa is clear, both on screen and in life. He inherits his grandfather's old Chevy Bel Air and drives it until it falls apart. Then he searches high and low to find another one just like it. After he finishes school, Alan takes a full-time job editing a documentary wildlife series called Wild Kingdom. It's a lot of work, but he brings a friend on with him, Galon Amerzian, and they become extremely close because of it. Later on, after Alan's disappearance, Galon will give an interview to journalist Jack Helbig for the Chicago Reader. In it, she describes Alan as a, quote, string bean, very tall, very thin, very intense, a thin that was attractive, end quote. By the mid-1980s, Alan's in his 30s and has blossomed into a confident, funny, magnetic leader, usually dressed in vintage clothes and running around Chicago in Converse high tops. He's also in a serious relationship with a woman named Flanagan McKenzie, who's also a filmmaker. They live together in Alan's loft and have become quite the power couple, the kind that makes everyone jealous when they show up at parties. Which is all to say, Alan's doing well for himself. His life seems to be on an upward trajectory. But then, in 1986, he's sidelined by another family tragedy. His mom, Anne, passes away from lung cancer, and the pain hits Alan hard. If you've ever lost a parent or a cherished loved one, you know how the loss can send you spiraling. 
thinking about death, mortality, faith, regretting the time you didn't spend with them, the calls you didn't make. Maybe as a way to try and process his grief, Alan and his girlfriend Flanagan take up a somewhat unconventional practice. They start conducting occult rituals. She calls the rituals the mysteries, but I couldn't tell you what they involve. They're secret. As Flanagan once told journalist Jack Helbig, they wouldn't be mysteries if you knew about them. Now, Alan's interest in the occult isn't too out of character. He's always been fascinated by the social fringes. In fact, that's part of the reason he clicks with this German filmmaker he meets in 1988, Christian Bauer. Christian and Alan become like creative soulmates. They start making documentaries about people who live their lives on the fringes of society, like a guy who claims he was abducted by aliens and a former stockbroker who became a monk. Then in the early 90s, Alan and Flanagan break up. According to Flanagan, the split is amicable, but still hard. They share a lot of the same social and professional circles. They've been dating for six years and living together for a lot of that. Someone needs to move out. And that someone ends up being Alan. Nearing 40, newly single, and leaving a home that he put a lot of love into, I have to imagine Alan's looking for some direction in his life. A new path forward. But soon enough, someone Alan trusts recommends a woman who might be able to help. A self-proclaimed healer named Linda Green. Linda hosts workshops in Guthrie, Oklahoma. It's 800 miles away from Chicago, but Alan makes the drive anyway and meets Linda in person. Linda leads a quasi-religious community called the Samaritan Foundation. Some of their practices are standard new age stuff like aura cleansing, but Linda's specialty is something called dowsing, which is an occult method of discovery that was popular during the middle ages. It works something like this. You swing a pendulum over whatever you want answers from, say a map or a chart or a bunch of words. Then you ask the pendulum questions out loud. They could be as simple as what should I eat for breakfast? or as significant as, should I get married? Then whatever answer the pendulum swings toward is meant to help you guide your decision-making. Now, for someone like Alan, who's open-minded when it comes to things like the occult and is struggling to figure out his next move, I'm sure dousing feels like magic. Suddenly, he doesn't have to know what he should do. The pendulum will tell him. But there's one moment that really helps Alan buy in. At some point, Linda singles him out and says that she's willing to heal the wounds left by his mother's passing. Over the next few months, Alan drives back and forth from Chicago to Guthrie to attend Linda's seminars. Some friends wonder why he's doing it. They question Linda's legitimacy, but others give it the benefit of the doubt, including Alan's old roommate. He knows Alan must have his reasons for getting so involved but no one's totally sure what happens in Guthrie because Alan is a little secretive about it. Like he apparently tells one of his best friends, Christian Bauer, the guy he made all those documentaries about strangers with, that he illustrated a book for Linda. And he says Linda is a former nurse turned writer, which is true. Linda was a nurse and she does write. 
but he doesn't mention much about her spiritual agenda or the details of what actually happens at the Samaritan Foundation. He just leaves to go on these adventures every once in a while, but he always comes home. Until one day, he gets back from a trip and tells a few friends he's married now and moving to Oklahoma to be with his wife, Linda Green. 60 years after the release of their first studio album, the Beatles fan base has never been greater or more curious. Hi, it's Carter. Right now on Conspiracy Theories, dive into the magical mystery surrounding the Fab Four in a three-part special called Beatlemania. Sex, drugs, death, and more death. The history of the Beatles and their Fab fandom is rife with conjecture, and we're taking on the hits. Was Paul replaced by a lookalike? Did Yoko incite the band's demise? And are there really any hidden messages in their lyrics? So many conspiracies, so little time. Before Swifties, before the Beehive, there was Beatlemania. Catch this three-part special now by following the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. In the early 90s, Alan Ross drops his life as a filmmaker in Chicago and moves to Oklahoma to marry his spiritual teacher, Linda Green. The news comes as a shock to his friends and family, but Alan seems happy. So for the most part, they're happy for him. But if any of them knew what was really going on at Linda's compound, they probably would have tried to stop him. See, by the time Alan moves to Oklahoma, Linda considers herself more than a new age healer. She has grand ambitions for her Samaritan Foundation, and she's come a long way in achieving her goals, thanks in part to her ex-husband, Dennis Green. Now, to understand what I mean, I want to take you back about 10 years to 1983, when Linda and Dennis first get married. Dennis isn't Linda's first husband. She's been married and divorced a few times, and over the course of her life, she's gone by a couple different names, including Genevieve and Jennifer. Now, that's a little strange and should maybe raise some red flags, but Linda apparently has a magnetic personality. When she worked as a hospice nurse, her patients adored her. In the Chicago Reader article I mentioned earlier, Dennis said when he was first introduced to her, he thought she was the nicest person he ever met. So at first glance, she seems normal. She's conventionally pretty, blonde. She likes acting and poetry. By the mid 80s, Linda and Dennis have a son. Then shortly after he's born, they start the Samaritan Foundation. Dennis isn't really into the new age stuff, but he wants to make Linda happy, so he goes along with it. And at first, all Linda wants to do is teach workshops about herbal tea. But by the 90s, Linda's got way more brewing. In her mind, she's on a mission to save the world. And she's good at finding people to join her cause even though her beliefs are extreme. On the surface, Linda says she wants to spread peace, love, and healing. She claims she uses dowsing as a way to eliminate disharmony. But in her journals, she writes about vampires and the Antichrist. She accuses public figures like Hillary and Bill Clinton of being zombies and talks about defeating them by cutting off their genitalia. That's a lot. 
And if you're anything like me, you're probably wondering why Alan takes her seriously. But it's important to remember, when people get indoctrinated into strange and unfounded belief systems, it's not usually all at once. It starts small, with things like asking questions to a swinging pendulum, and grows from there. Not to mention, people are especially impressionable during periods of instability. Like after your mother dies, your girlfriend breaks up with you, and you move out of your apartment you lived in for almost two decades. Times when you're looking for purpose and to regain a sense of agency. Plus, it probably helped that Linda kept Alan and all the other members of her foundation, the Samaritans, incredibly busy. Linda makes her members practice dowsing for every decision they make, down to what color clothes they should wear that day. Some marathon sessions last for days, long enough that some members actually become delirious. It's almost like a form of hypnosis. It makes them trust fate, luck, or Linda over their own critical thinking. When they're not dowsing, Linda has the Samaritans perform renovations around her place. See, by the time Alan moves to Guthrie, the Samaritans have around 30 to 40 members, including some children. Linda can't house them all, but luckily she bought an abandoned building across the street a while back, one that used to be a jail, and she tasks her members with turning it into a monastery with showers and bunk beds. Now, in 1993, a woman who once attended a 10-day retreat at the Samaritan Foundation gets involved in a custody case. Testimony sheds light on some of Linda's bizarre beliefs, and the news reaches Guthrie police. This is only months after the tragedy in Waco, Texas, that left 76 people dead after a standoff between the Branch Davidian sect and law enforcement. No one wants history to repeat itself, certainly not the police. So one day, an officer calls Linda to ask her some questions. I don't know all the details, but Linda ends up hanging up on the cop in a rage. The conversation freaks her out so much, she bans Samaritans from leaving the compound or making phone calls. And she tells them it's because vampires can steal your soul through the phone. So it's better if they use facts instead. Linda then pairs the Samaritans together with other members of the opposite sex in what she calls spiritual unions. As a part of this process, Alan weds a complete stranger named Jill. It's not a legal marriage, and obviously it's incredibly strange. But before I go any further, I have to warn you, things are about to get a lot weirder and a little graphic. See, after Alan marries Jill, Linda announces to everyone that she's dying. From what, I'm not sure. But she says the only cure is for Alan and Jill to have sex on top of her while the rest of the Samaritans watch. I could not begin to tell you why, but it feels like she's trying to push people to see how far they're willing to bend for her. And she's preying on their love or affection, whatever you wanna call it. But to me, it's gross and manipulative. Emotional abuse at its most twisted. At the end of the day, Alan and Jill do as they're told, presumably because they're thinking they're literally saving Linda's life. And after they're finished, Linda shares some good news. She's been healed. But there's bad news too. 
She's kicking Jill out of the group so Alan can be her husband. Now, the timeline isn't totally clear, but Linda and Dennis get divorced in 1993, the same year all of this is happening. Dennis gets custody of their son, but stays close so Linda can see him. Dennis also stays pretty involved in the Samaritan's work. But Linda and Alan get spiritually married. Alan becomes her right-hand man, and their union begins to change Alan. According to one former Samaritan, quite literally. In the documentary series, Deadly Devotion, they said, quote, his eyes were different, almost like there was somebody else peering out from behind them. In other words, the old Alan, the thoughtful, shy, compassionate artist is slipping away. He's disappearing. Back home in Chicago, Alan's friends only get glimpses of his life from postcards he sends between 1993 and 1994. Many are cryptic and troubling, like one he sends to his friend Robert Metric. It just says, I've resigned from life. Can't explain. I highly recommend it. His creative partner, Christian Bauer, gets one that reads, I seize the opportunity to seek answers for questions I had not been able to ask. And another that says, the masters will shut you up in a pen with others. Then it will be up to you to find a house to enter. Alan also sends Christian a video that talks about what happened in Waco and claims it was a government conspiracy. It's also strange Alan's loved ones start to worry. They want to know what's happening down in Oklahoma, especially because it all seems to be happening so fast. Meanwhile, back in Guthrie, the cops show up at Linda's doorstep. They've been notified of some code violations on the compound. They also know that around 15 children are living in her jail-turned-monastery. But Linda argues with them until they leave, telling them to come back with a warrant. She thinks officials are out to get her and the Samaritans. Tensions come to a head in April 1995, when the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City is bombed, killing almost 200 people. The Samaritans have nothing to do with the tragedy, but Linda becomes convinced that the police will blame her and her group. So she tells her followers that they all have to leave Guthrie without her. It's for their safety. But she doesn't send everyone away. Dennis is still around because, among other reasons, they have a son together. And she keeps two other people close, Alan and a woman named Julia Williams. Julia's been the key to Linda's operation this whole time. She's been bankrolling everything. With most Samaritans scattered to the wind, Linda and Alan look for a place to move. After they swing a pendulum over a map, it points them toward Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Julia buys them a house there. The three of them live there together. Dennis lives there too for about a month or so and visits regularly after that. But Alan's no longer surrounded by dozens of other people crammed into a converted jail. In a sense, it's the most domestic, ordinary time he's ever spent with his wife. But with fewer people and distractions, Alan starts to notice things, like Linda's flaws and the contradictions in her beliefs. And before the year ends, Alan presumably decides he wants to leave. He asks Dennis Green what cars have good gas mileage and are big enough to store all his belongings. 
It seems like he's looking for a way out, and soon enough, a way out finds him. Alan gets a call from Christian Bauer. He says he's making a movie about the Mississippi River and wants Alan to join him on a six-week trip from Minneapolis to New Orleans. So Alan jumps at the chance to reunite with his creative partner. In many ways, the trip feels like old times. Christian's happy to have his friend back, but something still seems off. One day, Alan and Christian are discussing how easy it is to be tracked via phones and credit cards now. Alan proposes an unusual solution that someone could theoretically get cards under a new name, build up a new identity, and then leave their old one behind. Maybe Alan's just musing, or maybe there's more to the statements. Either way, what neither of them know is, Linda Green is following them across the country. In November, Alan and Christian are filming in New Orleans. Alan's behind the camera, so he captures the moment when Linda rushes up to them with Julia Williams in tow. Alan pans away, but Linda follows the lens. She won't give up being the center of his focus. Christian only recently met Linda, and he's shocked by how annoyed and embarrassed Alan acts. She's not the sweet woman he pictured from Alan's stories. She seems controlling and demanding. On the last day of the shoot, Linda and Alan get into a fight about how he's not spending enough time with her. Christian tries to intervene, but Alan shuts him down. He says he'll meet him later for dinner to celebrate wrapping the movie. But Alan never shows. He leaves with Linda the next day. Later, Alan calls Christian from Cheyenne, Wyoming. He says he's happy, gardening and restoring the house that Julia bought. When Christian asks what else he's doing, Alan doesn't give any more details. After the call, Christian tries to connect with Alan to pay him for his work on the film, but Alan never responds, and the postcards to Chicago stop. In late 1995, Alan Ross stops contacting his friends and family. Alan's twin, Brad, contacts police in Oklahoma and Wyoming, where Alan lived with his wife and spiritual leader, Linda Green. But there's not much the cops can do. Missed calls and a lack of postcards aren't enough to launch a criminal investigation. Meanwhile, some of Alan's friends hope that silence is a good thing. Maybe he escaped Linda and went into hiding. Maybe he resigned from life and will come back once he works things out. But two of Alan's closest friends, Christian Bauer and Galen Amersian, decide to take action themselves. They team up and drive to Guthrie, hoping to question the remaining Samaritans in the area. They find some, but none willing to talk. Then in February 1996, Cheyenne police get a call from Linda's ex-husband, Dennis, who claims Alan isn't missing. He's dead. According to Dennis, at the end of November, Linda showed up at his home in Colorado, rambling about a serious argument she had with Alan. In the heat of the moment, she'd done something terrible. She shot Alan twice, then buried him in the crawl space under their home. But a few months after Dennis tells Wyoming authorities this story, Linda contacts the Oklahoma police by fax. Linda claims that in November, 1995, Dennis killed Alan in Wyoming. 
Linda and Dennis, two ex-spouses who share a child and have a complex relationship, have both accused the other person of murdering Alan Ross. The only thing their stories have in common is the location. So law enforcement pulls a warrant to search Alan and Linda's home. In March, 1996, the police visit the now abandoned home. They dig in the crawl space where Alan's supposedly buried, but don't find anything. And since there's no evidence that a crime occurred, they can't probe further. The cops don't deny Alan's missing, and the two murder accusations are undoubtedly strange. But it could also just be two deranged, vengeful exes trying to get back at each other. So without more to go on, the police think or hope he maybe just ran away to start a new life. Years pass, and Alan's disappearance never sits right with his friends and family. His dad, Lowry, keeps tabs on his bank account. There's $8,000 in there that hasn't been touched since Alan went missing. By 1999, Galen and Christian are making a documentary about Alan. It profiles his loved ones, digs into the lives of Linda and the Samaritans. In the spring of 2000, they travel to Oklahoma City with their camera equipment. They go to a house that Linda lived in after Alan disappeared and strike up a conversation with some neighbors. One shows them a box. They say it was given to them by a blonde woman who lived next door. She told them to get rid of it before she moved away. Inside, they find Alan's camera, which is obviously worrying. They know Alan would never leave it behind willingly. It was how he made sense of the world around him. From Oklahoma City, they travel to Guthrie. Alan's twin brother, Brad, meets them there, and they visit the converted jail where Alan and the other Samaritans lived. Parked outside, they find Alan's Chevy Bel Air, the same model as the one his grandfather left him. In the building, they find a locker with some camera footage inside, the makings of a film Alan started but will probably never complete. In the basement, they notice that the floor has been paved over with fresh concrete, and they can't help but wonder if there's something hidden beneath. They rip up the floor, but nothing's there. It's another dead end. But just when it feels like they're not getting any closer to learning the truth, Christian receives an unexpected phone call from Linda and she tells him a much different story than what she told the police. She says that Alan was killed by what she calls specialists, people who supposedly performed mind control experiments on him, then terminated him. All Dennis did was bury Alan's body. Then Christian learns that after Alan disappeared, Linda's family had her admitted to a psychiatric facility for a while. While Linda's story doesn't move the case forward, Alan's abandoned car, film equipment, untouched bank account, and an impassioned plea from Brad help get Cheyenne police to reopen his case. And investigators decide to pay Alan and Linda's old house another visit. On July 17, 2000, investigators search a room behind the main basement of the house and find a tennis shoe poking out of the dirt floor. It's a black Converse high top, just like the ones Alan used to wear. There are bones in the shoe and a body buried in the ground beneath it. A DNA test confirms it's Alan Ross. 
An autopsy report is released in January 2001. Allen died after being shot in the head with a 9mm gun. Based on the angle and entry point of the bullet, he was murdered, and his genitals are gone. Presumably, the killer cut them off. Now, maybe you remember, but that was one of Linda's suggested methods for defeating vampires. So, in the spring of 2001, Christian and Galon track Linda down. They find her in New Orleans, still living with Julia Williams. Linda agrees to an on-camera interview. In the video, Linda's hair is unkempt. She's smoking. She seems intoxicated as she repeats the whole story she initially faxed to the police. That Dennis shot Allen in that house in Wyoming. Now, the police have already been investigating Linda and Dennis, but in 2002, they hit a roadblock. Julia Williams calls them to say Linda just died from liver failure. And when Julia comes in to talk to the police, she makes a confession. She says that on November 22nd, 1995, she was there when Dennis killed Allen. She heard the gunshot and helped him bury the body in the basement. It's enough for the police to charge Julia as an accessory to murder. Julia goes to trial in November 2004. She may not be Alan's killer, but Alan's friends and family hope that the trial will lead to the truth, the whole truth. In her testimony, Julia still insists that Dennis killed Alan on November 22nd, but turns out Dennis has an alibi for that day. He apparently left Linda, Alan, and Julia that afternoon and drove back home to Colorado. He stopped at a hardware store in Denver along the way and has a receipt to prove it. According to him, Alan was still alive when he left Wyoming. Linda and Dennis's son takes the stand and testifies that his mother carried a 9mm gun, the same make as the one that killed Alan. Julia Williams never changes her story but Dennis's name is cleared. And in the end, Julia is the only person charged with a crime relating to Alan's murder. And she's only sentenced to two to three years in prison. To this day, no one can say for sure if Linda Green killed Alan Ross, just that prosecutors found the evidence very compelling. Now, I can't imagine the pain that Alan's loved ones have endured no one should lose their life trying to find belonging. So I want to leave you with this. If you know someone who's a part of a restrictive community that may be harmful, one of the best things you can do is just stay in touch. That's from Yanya Lalich, a sociology professor who wrote about the subject for the New York Times. She says even little touchstones like emails, letters, and photos can be helpful reminders of the outside world and it's best to lead conversations with empathy and understanding. Making them feel judged, embarrassed, or othered could only work to push them farther away. And if you yourself are a part of a restrictive community and looking for a way out, know that there is hope. Whether you have the most amazing, loving family to go home to, or no one at all, there's still time to turn to the next chapter of your life on your terms. Thank you for listening. 
In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. For more information on Alan Ross's disappearance, we found the documentary Missing Alan and the article The Alan Ross Mystery, A Body in the Basement by journalist Jack Helbig extremely helpful to our research. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Amin Osman, edited by Karis Allen, Aaron Lan, and Connor Sampson. Fact-checked by Claire Cronin. Researched by Mickey Taylor. Produced by Aaron Larson. With sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 